Open your copy of God's Word this morning to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we'll be looking at reading verses 18 through 21. And uh, for those of you who uh, picked up a copy of God's Word provided in the back, you'll find that on page 978. So here we have the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Ephesus. And looking here then at chapter 5, we read beginning at verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. God bless the reading and now the preaching of his holy word. Amen. It's good to have John back. Uh, Let's go ahead and pray before we get into God's word this morning. Lord, sometimes there's no words when we worship and sing songs like we just finished. As a response, how what, what could we possibly say in response to that other than we're floored, absolutely floored by your mercy. We're so undeserving. If you, if you, if you Lord, were to exercise your justice in response to who we really are in our hearts and all the sin that we have, we would be consumed in a moment. But you have been so gracious. You have done the unthinkable. You have crushed your son. You have set us free. You have created us. You have made us into a church of free people who are no longer slaves to sin, but are free to worship and serve you as our living God. And we love you, Lord. And we're so grateful for the opportunity to sit now before your word. Thank you that you provide it for us. Thank you that it's nourishing, that it's strengthening, that it's helpful, that it disciples us, that it grows us. And we pray that this morning that you would be with me, my lips, my mouth, and may it be pleasing to you. May you open the ears of your people May you do stuff in our hearts, enliven us, excite us, move our affections. Pray that not only just the worship and song would move us this morning, but the preaching of the word would move us and that we would be forever changed. That's a huge prayer. It's a big prayer to be forever changed through your word. But Lord, Lord, that's what we want. That's our desire. That's why we preach. That's why we labor in the word. Lord, help us. Change us. And make us more into a body that you desire us to be for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is the uh, fourth week in our series uh, together on Worship Matters. And we are intentionally going through this series because uh, we want to instruct our church on the subject of worship. We haven't, I don't think we've ever taken a whole preaching series, at least in the years that I can remember uh, and, and really work through a theology of worship, and that's what we're doing here. We're looking at seven different tensions that pop up um, regarding worship. And by tension, what, what I mean by that is things that, they, the two principles that seem to be at odds with one another, but in reality are not. They're not at odds with each other. So we've seen the tensions of God's greatness and his nearness in worship. I hope you felt some of that this morning. Uh, especially that last song, I was feeling his nearness because he was personally communicating to me the fact that he has redeemed me and washed me. So I was feeling some of that. We've talked about the importance and necessity of both head and heart in worship, that our minds have to be engaged, but our heart needs to feel some things as well. And then we talked last week about internal and external worship. We talked about what happens inside And then how that gets expressed on the outside. And what we're arguing throughout this series 
is that we all have a tendency to default toward one side or the other, one principle or the other. We want to pick between the two, but we have to avoid that tendency. Both principles must be in play for our worship to be biblical. And today we come to another tension, this tension between vertical and horizontal, the vertical aspect of our worship and horizontal. And in the Bible, worship has both a vertical and a horizontal dimension to it. And so both vertical and horizontal aspects have to be honored if we're going to worship God rightly. Now, the reason I've turned you to Ephesians chapter 5 is that in this text, we see both of these aspects at play in the same text. Now, let me go ahead and set the context for you of Ephesians chapter 5. We could divide this uh, book, this chapter, uh, really this paragraph, excuse me, into three simple points. In verse 15, Paul is encouraging us to walk wisely. Then in verse 17, Ephesians 5, 17, he's encouraging us to walk intelligently. And then in verse 18 and following, he's encouraging us to walk spiritually. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to work on that last point. What does it mean to walk spiritually? And we're thinking as a church, as the body of Christ, what does it mean for us to be filled with the Spirit as he uses the language there? How does, how does being filled with the Spirit impact, hear me, our corporate worship? In other words, what is spirit-filled worship? That's kind of the issue here. So let's hone in on verses 18 and 19. And what I want to do is I want to make four statements this morning about spirit-filled worship. And I'll just tell you up front that the first two are horizontal in aspect and the last two are vertical. All right? So you can follow with me. What these verses do is they provide a basic theology of worship for the church. And uh, let's start with this command in verse 18 to be filled with with the spirit. Every now and then, sometimes when I'm out in public and I'm reading my Bible, somebody will come up to me and they will notice that I'm reading the Bible and they'll strike up a conversation with me. And in the course of that conversation, it's not unusual at all to have somebody ask me a question like, so what do you do? And I'll say, I'm a pastor. And when they find out I'm a pastor, uh, one of the questions that I've been asked numerous times, it's kind of, it's kind of jolting, but they just come right out and say, so what's your church? And I say the name of our church and they say, is your church a spirit filled church? And it's amazing how often I get that question. And I have to be honest with you is that when I hear that question, my default reaction is to, is, is, is almost always to say, no, we're not because I'm concerned with why, why they're asking that. And I'm concerned with what they believe about what it means to be a spirit-filled church. And I'm concerned that we probably don't have the same definition. But my heart and my convictions about the Holy Spirit and my theology tell me to say yes to that person. Because I want to readily agree that yes, we are filled with the Spirit or seeking to be filled with the Spirit. Yes, we are on a hot pursuit of being a spirit-filled church. So in one sense, the answer is yes. In another sense, depending on what you mean by that, it's no. (laughs) And so it always puts me in a weird position. See, the problem is when people talk about spirit-filled churches or spirit-filled people, they often have something in mind that the scriptures don't teach. But thankfully, Paul clarifies that for us right here in Ephesians 5 with what it means, what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit. Very simply, to be filled with the Spirit is to be dominated, to be controlled, to be influenced by the Spirit. And to be filled with the Spirit means that the Spirit controls our lives in proportion to the saturation of our own hearts and lives with the Word of God. It's important for us to understand that being filled with the Spirit, in Paul's terminology, is a state of being. It refers to something that is distinctive and is separate from the ordinary operations of the Spirit at conversion. All right? So it's not like you're filled with the Spirit at conversion and that's it. And then you just kind of walk the rest of your life sort of in your own flesh. No. Being filled with the Spirit is an ongoing thing. It's a state of being. And it's something that is, it is separate and distinct from the ordinary operations of the Spirit at conversion. It's something that's repeatable, expansive, something that's ongoing, something that's vitally necessary if we are going to worship God and live rightly. Now, you get a glimpse of what it means to be filled with the Spirit by the comparison that he uses right there in verse 18. Kind of a strange comparison, isn't it? Talking about getting drunk with wine. He says, getting drunk, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. 
So we get an idea of what this means because getting drunk with wine, what does it mean? It means to be controlled by it. It masters you. It makes you feel a certain way. When you get drunk, it makes you act in a certain way. And likewise, being filled with the Spirit means that you are being controlled by the Spirit so that you feel and you begin to act in a different way. Gordon Fee says it like this. I think it's very helpful. It says, Paul here envisions a community of people, the church, whose lives are so totally given over to the Spirit that the life and deeds of the Spirit are as obvious in their case as the effects of too much wine in the case of the others. In other words, somebody looks at the church and they say, whoa, there's a powerful dynamic that's at work there. That must be the Spirit of God. They're doing stuff that they ordinarily wouldn't do on their own. They're led to act in extraordinary ways because the Spirit of God has filled them and is empowering them for ministry. And so when the Spirit of God fell on the apostles and they started to preach, remember this Acts chapter 1, in the Spirit's power, what did the people say about them? They said they're drunk. They said these guys are drunk and here's why. It's because they were speaking about Jesus with an unbelievable amount of joy and fearless boldness. I mean, something had come over them. And, and we need to say that the spirit-filled life is a life of joy. When we are under the spirit's control and the word of God is in us, that combination makes for an irrepressible joy. Think about what Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room. He said, these words I have spoken to you in order that your joy may be made full. God gave his word to us so that, his, so, so that in our hearts his word would abound and our joy would, would abound. And also consider the fruit of the spirit. One, the second one the, of the fruit is joy. Joy is the fruit of the spirit. And then Acts 13.52 says, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And so you cannot escape the fact that to be dominated and controlled and to be influenced by the Spirit of God through the Word of God and prayer brings about and produces a life of joy. So that's what the filling of the Spirit is. So now the question becomes, all right, how, are, how then are we filled with the Spirit? How does that happen? And the clue to that question I think is, is the, again, the comparison of verse 18. How do you get drunk with wine? Well, I mean, you drink a lot of it. You consume a lot of it. And the answer of this is the same with the Spirit. How do you get filled with the Spirit? You drink lots of the Spirit into your life. Now, I don't have time to develop this, but I could show you from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, from Romans chapter 8, 4 through 8, and from Galatians 3, 5, that the primary way that we drink of the Spirit is to read, meditate, pray, and commune with God over the Spirit's words, which are Scripture. And when that happens, people are filled with the Spirit, and Acts chapter 2, and Acts chapter 4, and Acts chapter 9, what happens when they're filled with the Spirit? The Word of God begins to come out of their mouth. When a person is filled with the Spirit and they begin to open their mouth and talk, the Word of God is just coming out. I mean, it's not their opinion. It's not their thoughts. It's not man-centered stuff. It's deeply saturated with biblical content. Now, notice that Paul does not say, be full of the Spirit, as, as in, I've had too much to drink. He says, be filled with the Spirit, which implies there's an ongoing responsibility here. So, let me just say five things about this. Uh, let's do a quick grammar lesson, all right? There's some really interesting grammar that happens here in the text. The verb, to be filled, is an imperative. It's a command. So this is not an option. This is not like a good suggestion. This is not like, hey, you know, if you want to um, function at a higher level, this would be a good recommendation for you. No, he is saying this is an imperative. This is obligatory for you. This is a command to be filled. Second, the verb is also plural. So he's, not, he's saying all of you be filled with the Spirit. In other words, this is not a privilege for certain Christians. You know, the, these guys are in a different class. You know, they're pastors, they're leaders in the church, they're evangelists. You know, no, no, it's for all Christians to be filled with the Spirit. It's not reserved for some. Third, the verb is in the present tense, which is indicating ongoing action. 
Paul has in mind a continuous, ongoing thing. This is, this is not a dramatic, decisive, sort of once-for-all event. Being filled with the Spirit is something that we are to pursue daily, hourly, moment by moment. And then fourth, the fact that we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit implies, think about this, that we run the risk, we run the risk or the danger of losing the influence, the presence, and the power of the Spirit in our lives. Some people, the the truth is, I mean, some people would say, I rarely feel divine strength and power and enablement and help in my life. And when a person says that, the the only real conclusion, if they're a born-again believer, is it's their fault. Because the Spirit is available to fill them, but something is in the way that is keeping them from receiving that ministry of the Spirit. There's a strength that comes, His presence. When a person is filled with the Spirit, God's presence is always felt. And that's how we're intended to live. And then fifth, according to the text, being filled with the Spirit produces five things. Now this is where we're getting into the worship component of our message. It says that being filled with the Spirit produces five things, okay? There are five things that flow out of this command, be filled with the Spirit. And those results are seen in five participles. In English, we call them gerunds, the I-N-G words. You see them all right there in verses 19 through 21. There's five of them. It's very intentional that Paul is writing this way. And he says, when we're filled with the Spirit, five things happen. Verse 19, we begin to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Number two, we sing. Number three, we make melody in our hearts. And number four, we give thanks. And five, we begin submitting to one another. So you see those things. These are all five results that come out of being filled with the Spirit. Now, for our purposes this morning, we're just going to camp on those first three in verse 19. And I want to make four brief statements about singing, about worship, about our corporate worship, okay? And uh, all coming, I trust, derived out of this text here in Ephesians 5. All right, here's the first one. You ready? Corporate worship is designed by God to be a means of discipleship whereby we instruct one another through singing. All right, corporate worship is designed by God to be a means of discipleship whereby we instruct one another through our singing. Verse 19 tells us that we are to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's our duty. This is the horizontal component of worship. The words used here are literally, the word used here is literally the word speaking, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The interesting thing is, why doesn't he use the word singing, singing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? I mean, if he has singing in mind, which I think he does, why does he use the word speaking or addressing to one another? And I think the reason is because at this point of the text, he's not really interested so much in the music aspect. He's interested in the words. He's interested in what we're communicating to each other. He's interested in what we're saying to each other. Instruction and edification is the issue. So the idea is not that we go around, you know, sort of quoting songs to each other. Like, hey, what's your favorite hymn? Well, my favorite hymn is this. What's your favorite new song? Well, let me quote the words to you. That's not the idea. The idea is that we are, while we are singing, while we are doing this, we are singing to one another. We are edifying and encouraging one another. And Paul uses this word speaking to emphasize the component, the edification instruction component of our worship. All right. Now, just an application here. I mean, because there's, a, there's kind of a super spiritual view of worship out there that says that all of our singing, all of it has to be directed vertically to the Lord. And that's just not true, and it's not biblical. Because part of our worship, the whole point of Paul here, is that we are to be addressing one another when we worship, when we sing. And if you work your way through the Psalms, what you'll discover is that the psalmist, half of the Psalms that he writes are directed to God in prayer, and about the other half are either directed to himself or other people. And so, so even the Psalms bear witness to this, which was the songbook of God's people in Israel. So for example, think about in our context, when we sing a great hymn like Luther's A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, God's not even addressed in that song. 
We are singing each to each other the truth of those words that God is our fortress, that God is our rock. We're encouraging one another. We're not praying to God. We're not singing to God in that instance. We are singing truth to each other. And that's why when we sing songs, and that's why we need songs in the church that are deeply rich in biblical and theological content. Because what else are we going to be instructing each other with unless the songs are robust and rich in nature? I mean, we're not going to sing, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to name a song because as soon as I do that, someone's going to say, it's my favorite song and that really helps me. <laughs> But the point is, there's going to be songs out there that, that are not going to be as helpful in instructing one another when we're singing. But there's going to be other songs that are going to be great in terms of teaching us about Christology, about the doctrine of Christ, or about the doctrine of God, or about the doctrine of salvation. And, and that's important, and that's necessary in our worship. These are powerful. Songs are powerful forms of instruction. Uh, Warren Wearsby said it this way. I really like this. He said, I'm convinced that congregations learn more theology from the songs they sing than from the sermons they hear. Many sermons are doctrinally sound, but they lack the necessary emotional content that gets hold of the listener's heart. Music, however, reaches the mind and the heart at the same time. It has power to touch and move the emotions, and for that reason, it is a wonderful tool in the hands of the Spirit. I think that's really well said. There, there's something very powerful about worship in song. Very powerful. I mean, it's, you, the, the, the music, especially when the tune or the, the, the musical piece really correlates well with the words, matches well. It's a powerful dynamic. And so I think Wearsby's right. Um, now, that's the horizontal dimension of our worship. We're a family, and we're here to sing the truth to one another, which, by the way, just to be clear, this is one of the reasons why we need to be, be careful that when we come into worship, we don't come in with an attitude like this is me and Jesus time. And so we're going to hang out and I'm going to do some intimate communion with Jesus. And I don't really care about what happens with anybody else. It's a t- ter- terrible view of the worship of the church. When we come here, I hope that God is doing some rich things in your heart privately. I hope you are communing with him privately, but you should open your eyes and look around and speak truth to each other and encourage one another. And you see somebody else engaged in worship. You sing to each other. We're addressing one another. This is a family issue. It's not just an individual me and Jesus issue. Second. Second statement. Corporate worship includes, is to include a full range of music for God's glory and our joy. Where do we see this? What does Paul say? A full range of music. Paul says, what kind of music should we sing? He says we should sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, which is Paul's way of saying that we are free, we are at liberty to sing, and even encouraged to sing the full range of music for the glory of God. We are invited to worship God with multiple styles with multiple genres of music. It's not just one thing that he likes. So, and so Paul uses three different words here because when, by, by using three different words, he has a distinction in his mind. In other words, there's a difference between a psalm and a hymn and a spiritual song. Some people have argued that, well, this is just really Paul's way of saying the same thing with three different words. And, and I think that's nonsense. He uses three different words for a purpose in order to indicate different types of singing for his glory. And, and so in this, in this case, what he's doing is, he is, his point is that worship is to be multifaceted and multidimensional. And that God does not just accept or appreciate one style of music. I mean, you really get to see this when you travel overseas. When I go to India and, and I go to Peru and I've been in various places, various contexts of the world. It's amazing to walk into a different context and you see like this guy in India. I mean, Dr. Mike was with me one time in India and we were in this uh, environment worshiping. And they, they had like this stick. It was like a silver kind of long vertical stick. And it had little symbols on it all the way down. And they would just bang it on the ground and shake it during worship. He said, I've never seen anything like that in the West. And they'll have all kinds of different types of boxes and drums and different types of hand instruments. And and everything sounds different, but they're just getting after it and using all those things for God's glory. And, And so it's clear that when you go around the world that God is receiving praise from his people 
in a multitude of ways, in a multi-variety of ways. And it's not like there's just kind of one thing that God likes and that's his deal. God is happy to receive the praise of his people with all kinds of instruments, with all kinds of songs, because he's worthy of every kind of instrument that can be built. If you can build it and make it sound good for edification, then let's get it up here and use it. That's the idea. Because God's worthy of a wood thing, of a silver thing, of a gold thing, of a bronze thing. Whatever makes a good, beautiful noise for edification, he's worthy of that instrument. If you want to invent an instrument, then do that. The point is, God is willing and ready to receive that. So what is the difference then between psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Well, psalms most likely refers to the 150 psalms that we have in our Bible. And, and I think one of the good reasons why we, I can say that with conviction is that Luke says so in, in, in Acts. He refers to the book of psalms. So clearly it was a... It was some kind of a a book that was already established in the early church and known at some level as a songbook for God's people. And so clearly we know it was a songbook for Israel. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, when you come to worship, each one brings a psalm. So psalms probably refer to those biblical 150 psalms that we have in our scriptures. Okay, hymns. The word hymn comes from the word humnos, which was used in Greek secular um, pagan literature to refer to a traditional or a, a, a song that was written in honor of a deity. It was a song of praise. Okay, That's in pagan secular literature, but it's also in all of Greek literature. That's just what the word meant etymologically. Humnos, it was really just a song of praise written in honor of a deity. So that could be a pagan deity or it could be Jehovah. It could be Yahweh. It could be God himself. It's a song of praise. It says nothing about the era in which it was written. It doesn't say anything about it being new or anything about it being old. And so again, just by way of application, it would, be, it would be really wise for us to stop thinking about hymns as old and praise songs as new. That's a very unfortunate and unnecessary dichotomy. Biblically speaking, humnos, hymns, are songs of praise. And songs of praise, praises, are hymns. They're the same thing. The date in which they are composed is largely and essentially irrelevant. They can be old or new. They can, what matters in the songs of praise that we sing is the content. So I don't really care if it was written in 1720 or if it was written last week. What I care about is the content of that song. We have examples of hymns in scripture. Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. Or Mary's Magnificat in Luke 1. Or all the Christological hymns that were penned for the early church, Philippians 2, 6 through 11. One of the richest and deepest sections of scripture on Christology. And they sang that. You read Philippians 2, 6 through 11, and think about the richness of their content of musical singing. Amazing. Amazing they were singing that. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. 1 Timothy 3, 16. These are hymns that were written for the early church. And then finally, we have spiritual songs. I want to camp here for a little bit. We see the word used in Revelation 5, 9. They sang a new song. We see it again in Revelation 14, 3. They sang a song to the Lamb. Now notice that Paul doesn't just use the word songs. He uses the word, the adjective, spiritual. Spiritual. And by using the term spiritual... Paul could be differentiating here between songs that are composed over and against those that are spontaneously evoked by the Spirit himself. In other words, there are songs and then there are spirit songs, spirit evoked, spirit prompted songs that are given to God's people. And I think that's what he has in mind here by the term spiritual songs. Song. What seems to be in view here are songs that are prompted by the Spirit and therefore are uniquely appropriate to the occasion or the emphasis of the moment. This is exactly what we see in Exodus 15. You say, well, where's an example of that in Scripture? Exodus 15. God's people come through the Red Sea, 
They get to the other side, and as soon as they reach the shore on the other side, they break out into spontaneous song and praise. Moses did not sit down on the shore and compose a hymn real quick and then say, okay, let's sing this to God. They began to sing. God gave them a song. He gave them a a lyric. He gave them a, 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 a praise to himself. And then it becomes even stronger if you go to chapter 15, verse 19, you see the spontaneity even more. It says, Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, quote, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. When you read the Hebrew narrative, there's no gap. There's no time space in between the, the moment they get to the other side of the sea. And then it says, and then Miriam grabbed a tambourine. The women went after her and they started dancing and she started singing, quote, and these words were coming to her heart in her mind. That was a song that spontaneously came from the mouth of Miriam by the influence of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes in worship, a spontaneous chorus will break out among God's people. A person, for example, will start singing the doxology at the end of a sermon because that person is moved by the Spirit. They didn't plan that. All of a sudden they start singing, you know, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And everybody else is like, what are you doing, man? You don't have the right to do that. And, and, and that something like that will happen. But then what will happen is God's people will join that person in a spontaneous uh, song of praise. I can remember being at Cedarville where it was my alma mater and uh, when I was in college and we had a really bad thunderstorm one night and we were gathered together in the chapel and I think we were in the middle of like a a missions conference week or something. And and the lights went off, the power went off and we were like, what are we going to do now? And so um, a guy in the crowd said, uh, let's sing uh, It Is Well With My Soul. There's 3,000 people gathered, you know. And so uh, somebody goes, start, you know, and he goes, and he starts singing. Everybody started going. There's no screen or anything. Somebody goes, amazing grace. And we started singing like this. It went on for an hour and a half of people just singing. And it was just like one guy would say, let's sing this, you know, and it was, it was beautiful. It was amazing. It was beautiful to see that. But of course, As soon as you start talking about this level of spontaneity and spirit moved and prompted things, people get uncomfortable. But let me, let me tell you, you shouldn't get uncomfortable. All right. You shouldn't be uncomfortable, especially those of us who come from a biblically informed and theologically robust tradition like ours. See, our default, our tendency is to be very ordered and very structured in what we do. We don't tend to lean on or to wait for or to expect the Holy Spirit to do anything in addition to what we have planned. And I don't think that's honoring to the Spirit. And I think that we do want to be planned, but we need to be very careful about not expecting the Spirit. You don't, you mean, you don't expect the Spirit to do something other than what you've planned? That's going to be a terrible service. Let's be honest. If what you have planned is the best that's going to come out of, this, out of the service, well, then we might as well stay home. Because if the Spirit doesn't come and bless and move and motivate and encourage and enliven and awaken God's people, we're wasting our time. So, so we, there is a sense in which, of course, we're longing for the Spirit to, to do something in addition to what we have already planned. But here's the problem. People in general want a predictable experience when they worship God on Sunday morning. They want to know, they have to know what's coming next. People don't like the unexpected. Let me share my story with you for a moment on this matter. I mean, over the years, I have experienced some incredible things in some various contexts. And I have grown to really love and appreciate it when God shows up in an extraordinary way that we have not planned and that we did not prepare for. And I don't know if you have ever experienced that. I assume that a lot of you have because you've been Christians long enough and you've been in various contexts to see that. But if you have not, it is an awesome thing to witness. And I, and I hope and pray that you get an opportunity to see that because I'm convinced that it does not happen enough in our context. 
And, that, and, and honestly, that concerns me a bit as a pastor. Because if everything is always perfectly the way we ordered it and planned it, then that says something. That, that, that's somewhat concerning for me as a pastor. I have some ideas why that's the case, but we'll have to explore that in another message. But as I said, spontaneous expressions of joy or praise in the middle of a service can make people feel uncomfortable. And certainly, certainly we want to recognize the biblical principle in 1 Corinthians 14.40, which says everything should be done decently and in order. But you have to remember that when Paul spoke those words, hear me on this, okay? Just track with me. When Paul said those words, he said them right after he said, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Then he said, but all things should be done decently in order. In other words, in Paul's mind, clearly for Paul, speaking in tongues and spontaneous prophetic utterance was not by definition a violation of order. There's no other way to look at this text. That's the clear conclusion. Otherwise, he would not have encouraged it. He encourages both things. He encourages both order and the spontaneous ministry of God's Spirit. See, in Paul's mind, there's a way for a spontaneous ministry of the Spirit to happen with order. We see that in verse 27 when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn. And then he says, and let someone interpret. So this is not a sermon this morning about whether or not the gifts of the Spirit continue. Okay, This is about a principle that I'm laying out here about the, 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 the fact that order and Spirit-prompted spontaneity can occur in the same time at the same time. In other words, there's a way to maintain order in the midst of spirit prompted spontaneity. But more on that next week. Pastor Mark is going to open that whole subject up for us and we are going to discuss that and look at this from scripture. He's going to build a theology of that. But for now, the principle I'm seeking to establish is the fact that order does not always mean, listen, predictability. Hear me. Everything that we do must be done with order. But everything that happens does not have to be predictable. In fact, it can't be. We don't live that way. We we don't know how or when the Holy Spirit will move upon his people. The question is, are we willing to invite God to mess up our schedule, to change the order, and to alter our plan if he wants to? I hope so. I sincerely hope so. So this kind of spirit-prompted, spontaneous praise is what I think Paul has in mind here by spiritual songs. Now, in summary, you can see the flexibility of music here. God is not restricting us to psalm singing only with no instrumentation. No, he's inviting us to praise him in a multiplicity of ways. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. We have the freedom to create and write and compose all kinds of songs for his glory and our good. And so corporate worship is designed to include the full range of music for God's glory and our joy. Okay, third, third statement. Corporate worship is directed to the Lord and includes both singing and playing music. We see this again in verse 19. He says, singing and making melody to the Lord. All right, this is the vertical aspect of our worship. We worship God. We are singing to the Lord. This should be clear. Now, it was probably the horizontal aspect that was new for some of you. But this vertical aspect should be clear and obvious. But still, let me say a word on it. Vertical worship is God-focused. That is, it's like a, it's like a, a camera lens when it's out of focus you can't see but when you bring it into focus the picture becomes clear god is the focus of our worship secondly it's god-centered that is he's the priority he's the point of it all we don't gather here for ourselves we gather here for him it's for his glory it's for his praise and then third it's god exalting that is god is honored Biblical worship is God exalting he's lifted up he's magnified he's glorified we're here to We're here to say how awesome and great he is. So let's just be really clear about something. When we worship God, we do it not because of some deficiency in him. It's not like God needs us. 
It's not like he's saying, you know, I'm kind of lonely up here in heaven and I need you all to sing to me because I feel lonely. Or I'm, I'm lacking something. I need to be praised because I feel like I need some affirmation. I don't, I don't have a good, you know, sort of self-esteem. <laughs> Obviously, that's crazy. God does not need us. The point is, we need God. We worship God because we need Him. And secondly, we worship God because His moral perfection demands it. Just requires it. He's, God is the, 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 the type of being that walks into a room that, Jesus, just like Jesus, came into a place and immediately demanded respect. He commanded respect, not because he said so, not because he said respect me, but because his presence just commands respect. And that's how God is. His moral perfection demands it. In fact, it's idolatrous to worship anything other than God because he's superior to everything else. Worshiping God, then, hear me, is not a means to another end. We don't worship God because we want to feel a certain way. I'm not saying that it's never right to say I really need to get to church because I'm anxious and I need to feel some peace. That's true and that's important. But what I'm saying is that we don't worship the feeling. We don't worship worship. One of my concerns in our contemporary culture is that it seems that some of the worship that goes on today is a worship of worship. It's a worship of the experience. What we're trying to do is worship God not the experience. We don't worship God to get something other than God. God doesn't exist to help you get something else that you really want. He is the something else. He is the thing that you really want. And that's why John Piper is right when he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So it's it's perfectly appropriate to seek pleasure and happiness in God. And when we worship God, when we worship God, it's best if we can find joy in doing so. Those two things are meant to go together. In other words, your worship of God is meant to elicit happiness and joy in your heart. C.S. Lewis put it this way. This is such a profound statement. He said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise does not merely express but completes the enjoyment. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling each other how beautiful they are. Their delight in one another isn't complete unless it is expressed. There's something about worshiping God and the expression of our praise to him that brings us more joy. And that's how God designed it, to which I say a hearty amen to C.S. Lewis. Friends, I hope that we are finding more and more delight in God with each passing day. He is all satisfying which is why Psalm 1611 says in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So we sing, but notice that we are also to make melody to the Lord. Now this word melody actually means to pluck or to play an instrument. Okay, so it's not like you're just humming a tune in your heart. To make melody, we are to play music. We are to be skilled on our instruments. That's what God is saying here. God is saying, God wants us to not only sing with our voices, but to use, praise God, musical instrumentation. And I say that because churches that argue for no instrumentation are on very shaky ground. Maybe you've been around some of those. But the the point is the Psalms are filled, the Bible's filled. And right here is a clear command to use instrumentation in our worship. The Psalms are filled with it. All kinds of instruments to praise God, as I've already said. One of my favorites, I love this, is Psalm 150 which says, praise him with trumpet sound, praise him with lute and harp, praise him with tambourine and dance, praise him with strings and pipe, praise him with sounding cymbals, praise him with loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. I love that. Do you know the only instrument, what's the only instrument in there that's mentioned twice? Cymbals, cymbals. And he not only says, drummers in the crowd, (laughs) he not only says, Praise him with sounding cymbals. He says, praise him with loud crashing cymbals. Now that just doesn't sound very reverent. But that's what God has asked for. God says, give me some cymbals. Give me not just some cymbals, some loud crashing cymbals. Give me some of that. God says, that's what I desire. That's what I want. That's what he's asking for. 
And guess what else he's asking for? A pipe and a lute and a harp and a tambourine and a dance. Point is, as I said earlier, if you can play it in an excellent and undistracting way, then let's get it up here. It's for his glory. It's made for him. They all exist for his glory. So verse 19 says, make music to the Lord. Make melody, make music, play the instrument in your heart to the Lord. Can I just say a word to our worship team? When you guys are playing your instrument, do that in your heart. Of course, this is not a performance. We're not here to see how good you are on your instrument, but we want you to play it well. But do it from your heart. Now, you know that the word heart in the Bible is a comprehensive term for the whole inner man. In short, Paul is telling us that we are to engage the whole being when we worship. The heart is the center of a man. It's the essence of a man. It's his being. And we've already addressed the mind in this series and the emotion in this series. Let me just say a word in closing as we close here on the will and the physical body in our worship. Regarding the will, we are to engage our will, the volition And by doing that, we're committing ourselves to do whatever we're singing. Think about this. We're committing our will to the words we sing, which means we need to be really careful when we sing certain words of songs. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Do you mean that? I surrender all. I surrender all. Really? It's a big word you're saying there. Do we understand that when we sing those songs, we're engaging the volition, the choice, the will. We're committing ourselves to obey what we sing. So we need to be very careful. But we still have to engage the will. In other words, God doesn't want just your lip service. He doesn't want you just singing songs about stuff you're not willing to do. So you have to engage your will. Like when we're worshiping, you have to say, okay, God, okay, I'm I'm willing to do what you're asking me to do here. So the will is part of it. And then finally, the body. It's interesting that the words in Greek and Hebrew for worship all have to do with physical movement. So how wrong is it when we think of worship as something that's internal only? You know, if, if I told my wife, if I told my wife, Tina, that I loved her, but I never demonstrated it, she wouldn't be very impressed. And we are to use our body in worship. It can be a tear. It can be a bowed head. It can be a raised hand. It can be a knee on the ground. It can be a shout of praise. But we are to use our bodies. Let me give one more example in closing. Um, Raising of hands in worship. Some people still asking questions about that, wondering why that happens, why we do that. Um, I've been asked, Jonathan, why do you personally lift your hands in worship? Let me give you my answer twofold. All right. Number one, because I raise my hands when I pray and when I sing, because I have explicit biblical precedent for doing so. I I don't know if I found all the instances of this, but there's 14 that I wrote down here. I'm not going to give them all to you right now. Come up and ask a bunch of them in the Psalms, second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Lamentations, first Timothy, that Tell us to raise our hands to the Lord. Some people might object and say, yeah, but some of those texts, Jonathan, are not referring to worship. They're talking about prayer. As if a rigid distinction can be made between the two. The truth is, I can't recall ever worshiping God without praying to him. And prayer itself is an act of worship. These things go together. My question is simply this. Why do we assume that the appropriate place for our hands in worship is at our sides? Why do we make that assumption? In light of all the text in Scripture, wouldn't it be just as reasonable, if not more, to assume that the appropriate place for your hands is raised toward the heavens, at least sometimes, in some circumstances? So, you shouldn't feel guilty if you're not raising your hands, okay? But what I'm challenging you to do is I want you to, I want you to seriously assess whether or not you're willing to do that in the right circumstance, and whether or not you're willing to consider this. That's what I'm asking you to do. Consider the biblical evidence. Second answer I give to the question is, why do you raise your hands is this. Because I'm not a Gnostic. Gnosticism 
both in its ancient and modern forms, disparages the body. Among other things, it endorses a hyper-spirituality that minimizes the goodness of physical reality. But biblical Christianity celebrates God's creation of physical reality. We, listen, we are more than immaterial beings. Our souls have a body. And we are to worship God, not just with our souls, but with our bodies. Listen, when, when, you, when we exchange wedding vows, many of us said something like this, with my body, I will honor you. With my body, I will adore you. With my body, I will declare your worth. We said that to our spouse. Are we not willing to say that to God? Surely we are. Verse 19 says, we are to sing and make melody to the Lord with our heart. That's the center of a man, with our being, both soul and body. Well, we've seen both the vertical and horizontal dimensions of our worship. And we've said, this is what I've said in this, year, in this sermon, that it is corporate worship is designed by God to be a means of discipleship whereby we instruct one another through singing. Two, it, incur, it includes a full range of music for God's glory and our joy. Three, it is directed to the Lord and includes both singing and playing music. And if it's to be true worship, it must come from the heart, which includes the whole person, both body and soul. So let's, let's let that word work on our hearts this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are leading us and instructing us through it. We pray that we would be open and receptive to your word, not resistive. Father, that we would not judge one another. We would not look down at one another. That guy is not lifting his hands. That guy is lifting his hands. Lord, would you give us a spirit of humility? Would we have a spirit of just willingness and receptivity to your word? That you would continue to help us as a church to engage you in a more robust and yet more theologically driven and God-centered way for your glory and for the good of your church. We pray these things in Christ's name.